You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Everyone loves a good countdown. Nine. Ignition sequence starts. But a successful moon landing, well, it was not inevitable. In fact, soon after President Kennedy made his famous public statement, NASA confessed that it wasn't sure it could pull it off. We didn't know anything about how to get there. There was no rocket that could carry you to the moon. There was no spaceship that could land on the moon. There were no spacesuits for people to get out of that spaceship and walk around. There was no moon food. In fact, on the day that Kennedy gave the speech, May 25th, 1961, there was still an argument inside NASA about whether human beings would be able to think in space, whether our brains would work correctly in zero gravity. NASA put the odds that we would make it there and back safely by the end of the decade at 50-50. Chaos flight controller is going to go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. If you remember watching Neil Armstrong take one small step, then you're at least a half century old. Still looking very good. Here go. Eagle looking great. But on the 50th anniversary of that day in July 1969, we go behind the familiar phrases and the iconic photos that make it all look so easy to the mad scramble, the mistakes and contingency plans along the way, and to the hundreds of thousands of men and women whose feet would never touch lunar regolith but made it possible that a select few did. In this special episode for Apollo's 50th anniversary, what led to nailing the moon landing? We did it. We launched a spacecraft to the moon, a craft composed of three stages, because really, you can't build a single-stage rocket that could do this because it would be too heavy. And this craft worked as it was supposed to. The service module at the bottom, it was jettisoned. The lunar module Eagle landed on the moon. And the command module Columbia brought all three astronauts home safely. It was a magnificent achievement. My name is Matt Hayes. I am honored to say I'm the president and CEO of the Museum of Flight here in Seattle, Washington. Host to a Smithsonian exhibition of Apollo 11, which hasn't been on tour since 1970. And it includes perhaps the iconic artifact. 
and we are standing right next to the original, the only Apollo 11 capsule that was part of the first moon landing mission. So Matt, when you say the original, you don't mean a replica, a duplicate, another one that was in storage. This is the real capsule. This is Columbia. This is the capsule that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins took 25,000 miles per hour to the moon and back. All three of them fit in that capsule. They absolutely did. For eight full days, they spent time in that and the lunar lander and uh, still managed to come back friends and spend another few weeks in a containment facility once they arrived home. Let's do a walk around the perimeter sure. and, and tell us what you see when you look at this capsule, if you could describe it in detail. One of the things you first notice is it's lived a hard life from coming back into the atmosphere primarily the burns and the scars from coming into the atmosphere and the thousands of degrees of temperatures that it encountered. You see a honeycomb type structure, very small pieces of honeycomb, and each one of those pieces all around the capsule was hand filled, mostly by women, full of resin. And that is what protected this outside shell from the harsh conditions outside. Now the windows that we see here, had we been able to fly alongside of this 50 years ago, yeah. Whose faces would we have seen in those windows? <laughs> so inside you would see the three astronauts sitting side by side. There was no up or down, so I can't say their heads were anywhere uh, facing up or down. There are a few windows for the capsule so people could look out on both sides. And a very small one on the back side where uh, Michael Collins, when he was alone floating around the moon, could use a sextant to shoot the stars, just like our ancient travelers from across the oceans in the 16 and 1700s. Which must have been one of the most dramatic, solitary ventures any human has taken. Mm -hmm. Michael Collins orbit around the moon while yeah. waiting for the eagle to reconnect. You can only imagine what it must have felt like and it was further isolation considering that every time he went out on the moon part of that time he was out of contact with all humanity because on the dark side of the moon they had no radio communications with Houston so not only did he not have human contact he could not even contact the people back on earth each and every time he went around the moon. Can we keep going Absolutely. just around here? All right what else do you see? Well, uh, this is maybe for people who like more interesting parts of it. Uh, we see two white knobs with a, a gold plate on them. This is where, uh, and they had to eject human waste out of the spacecraft. It came out of there. And the reason there are little gold pieces there is so it didn't freeze immediately on exit. It gave it that quick portion of a second where it could move away from the aircraft without freezing to the aircraft. Cool. So you don't have the inglorious return with human waste stuck Correct. to the side it, of the capsule. Exactly, yes. You don't, you don't have any of that frozen material left there. Well, Matt, as we finish our tour around the capsule Columbia, you personally looking at that capsule, what do you think about? It's almost unfathomable to, to relate the fact that this has been basically to the moon and back. And so I think sometimes getting my head around the fact that not only is it a story that I've heard every year of my life, that the object that went there took care of those people and got it back safely and, and was the pride of a country and a whole world is sitting five feet in front of where we're talking today. That's what I think about is just getting my head around that. Matt Hayes from the Museum of Flight in Seattle with a capsule that brought three astronauts safely back to Earth the command module, the mothership for Apollo. But it's not the whole story. Because in order for a trio of parachutes to slow Columbia for its splashdown in the Pacific Ocean on July 24, 1969, allowing three astronauts to emerge alive, carrying a bag of moon rocks, thus fulfilling the president's public pledge, before all of that, NASA needed to get moving. It needed to invent a way to get to the moon and back. 
Author Charles Fishman takes us behind the scenes to illuminate the scramble, the errors, even the tragedies of the moonshot efforts in his book, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. 410,000 people worked on 11 Apollo missions, built the spacecraft, the equipment necessary to go to the moon and back, 411,000, 410,000 people. And the Apollo missions, the race to the moon in the 1960s, was the largest civilian undertaking ever in the history of humanity. Now, Matt describes that honeycomb structure being hand-filled, mostly by women, filled with resin. You write that this was typical of the Apollo program. We think of the mission as being high-tech, but one of the things the women were doing was weaving computer memory. That's a little odd. Maybe you could explain what that means. You know, Apollo was this remarkable blending of literally advanced cutting-edge technology that had to be invented in order to get to the moon. We had to invent this Apollo flight computer, the smallest, fastest, most nimble computer ever. We had to invent the spacesuits. We had to invent that heat shield material that was injected into the honeycomb one little cell at a time was an all-new material. This was an era when small computers were the size of two or three refrigerators lined up next to each other. You couldn't fly a refrigerator to the moon. MIT managed to invent a computer that was the size of a briefcase, but the guts of the computer, the actual programming, the memory, there was no technology to do it. And so each wire in that computer was hand-stitched by a woman. They employed mostly former textile workers in a Raytheon factory in Waltham, Massachusetts. One and zero at a time. There were about 590,000 ones and zeros. The memory for one Apollo flight computer took eight weeks. So, Charles, exactly how do you weave memory? How do you sew memory into a computer? (laughs) Was that not, Charles, those little magnetic donuts, little metal donuts about, you know, I don't know, a quarter of an inch across or something that had to be uh, woven into a matrix of wires? Isn't that the way they did it? That was sort of the way they did it. The, the donuts weren't a quarter inch across or the thing wouldn't have fit in the, uh, in the spaceship. They were much tinier than that. They looked like tiny little beads and the wire went either through the middle or around the side to get a, a one or a zero. But there was lots of other weaving besides just that. All the circuits had to be connected to each other. And this wiring wasn't then programmed. The pattern in which the wires were woven was the programming. That's why it was kind of remarkable. It was both tedious work, but it was meticulous work. You had to get every wire right. Well, to give an example of the Plan B contingencies that had to be employed during Apollo, let's take a listen to this. My name is Jeff Nunn, and I am the adjunct curator for space history at the Museum of Flight. So what we have here is a medical kit from the command module Columbia. Uh, So it it contains uh, all of the items that the astronauts would need in the event that someone fell ill during during the trip in order to continue their mission. In fact, so much of Apollo 11, all the Apollo missions was under the auspices of in the event that. Yes, absolutely. Even down to the point of, of what would happen if Neil and Buzz got trapped on the lunar surface. Richard Nixon famously uh, had this alternate speech prepared in the event that something disastrous 
first happened, which thank goodness it did not. Over here, you said this one of your favorite artifacts. Yeah. It would seem unassuming, and yeah. yet it has quite a story behind it. What is this? Uh, so I love artifacts that if you found them on the floor or in a box or something, you wouldn't even think twice about them. We have a felt tip marker, and this marker actually helped save the mission. Uh, this belonged to Buzz Aldrin. He brought it with him. And when they climbed back into the lunar module after their famous moonwalk, uh, one of their backpacks actually bumped into a circuit board and broke off one of the circuit breakers. And that breaker happened to be the one that was used to arm the engine that would get them back off the moon. And so it had snapped off. And we actually have the broken circuit breaker here as well. And so while they were troubleshooting what to do about it, Buzz realized I've got this marker and he jammed it into the, the circuit breaker box and managed to flip the switch in order to arm it so that they could fire the engine to get them back up off the moon and back to Earth. <laughs> so when we think of all the contingency plans that these thousands of engineers had pulled together, I would guess that not one of them had thought, well, our plan B in this situation is a felt pen. I think that's absolutely right. And if you ask a flight controller, they might give you a different story. They might say, well, we were working on a contingency. We had a contingency, but Buzz was thinking on his feet and it worked. <laughs> and does it also work as a pen? Uh, yes, I imagine it definitely think it did. It was That was what it was there for. Okay, Charles. Well, Jeff describes how Buzz improvised there to uh, get that circuit breaker to flip, because if it didn't, he'd still be on the moon, I suppose. Well, I'm trying to picture that. How did he use, Charles, do you know how he used the pen exactly? What happened was that they weren't quite circuit breakers like you'd see in your house, but almost, right? There were switches sticking out. And NASA consulted the company that, that made all these circuit breakers and said, how can we fix this? They were busy trying to reroute the circuitry. They could do that, too, by using a different circuit breaker. But the company said, you can just jam something in there, and it will move the switch from off to on. And so that's exactly what Buzz Aldrin did. Well, Charles, I think that this is a good example of why, you know, the machines haven't replaced the astronauts altogether because the astronauts, and particularly the ones that went to the moon, I mean, they were very good at improvising, thinking on their feet. I mean, Aldrin comes up with a solution that doesn't involve hot wiring the, the rocket engines, and that wasn't the only example of that, right? I mean, the, these guys were good. No, there, there was, of course, a lot of that. The guy in charge of planning missions, of making sure that at every moment everybody knew what they were going to do, was a man named Bill Tyndall. And he said that 80% of the work of mission planners was contingency planning, was imagining what could go wrong and then de developing sort of scripts off to the side for what would happen if that happened. You know, in Apollo 13, they famously used the lunar module as a lifeboat because the command module didn't have the resources anymore to bring them home safely. I wonder if you could just give us your name and your title, sir. It's James Allen Jokey. I was the EMU flight controller on Apollo and mission control. So now we're walking to um, a mock-up of the EMU, which was the Extravehicular Mobility Unit. Right. What was that, an well, EMU? Okay, well, that was the spacesuit, the backpack, emergency oxygen system, the helmets, the radios, and the backpack provided the communication, power, oxygen, pressurization, water, CO2 management, all that. It was a self-contained unit, like a small spacecraft. We can't overstate its importance. It was, yeah. it was their life support. Right. 
It was actually called the Portable Life Support System. Okay, so, so what could have gone wrong? And did anything <laughs> go, <laughs> just, just the question makes you laugh. They have what we call an emergency oxygen supply, a purge system. It's, it's a little unit that's sitting on top of the backpack behind her head. So if there was a failure in the primary backpack, the, the PLIS, PLS support system, they would have to activate that. It would give him oxygen and it would purge the system to try to cool him down. And we would have them sort of spiral in closer and closer to the lunar module so that if they had a problem that required to be done, they were close enough that they had 20 minutes. That's what the oxygen purge system allowed, 20 minutes to get back into the lunar module. And did anything go wrong? No, all, all of my lunar EVAs, all six of them were perfect. The backpacks and the systems worked perfectly. And that's basically what it looks like. It weighs about 90 pounds. I thought I had a big backpack where I carry my equipment. It is definitely dwarfed by yeah. this <laughs> backpack. So 90 pounds. Well, this the whole system weighed uh, 185 pounds. The suit, the backpack, OPS, but on the moon, that's what? Six, what is it? One, uh, six goes in there, about 25 pounds on the moon. But you still had the mass. You put the backpack on and you connect the hoses and you connect all these units and then once they turn it on and everything is working and I'm looking at the on ground control that everything is working, they start depressurizing the lunar module, get down to hard vacuum, they open the door and then the flight director would ask, are, are both the EMUs functional? And I'd say, yeah, go fight. And then Neil would get on his hands and knees and lay face down and then he'd slide out, go down the ladder. Why did he get on his hands and knees? That's the only way he can get out the door. You had to lay flat on your belly. Have you, have you looked at the door up there? It's not very big. And matter of fact, uh, Buzz, in the process of doing, he knocked off two toggle switches. One which was very important, the one that'll get you off the moon. Yeah, and if you that can't, one you want to keep on. Yeah, well that one, they, 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 he busted it off and then he had to use a, a felt pen to activate that. Otherwise, they'd be stuck on the moon. Well, finally, Jim, what image do you want to leave us with as we approach this 50th anniversary of Apollo 11? It was incredible, and like Cernan said, we need to go back to the moon. We should have gone back to the moon 30 or 40 years ago. That's Gene Cernan, the last yep, man exactly. to leave the moon. That's correct, absolutely correct. Well, Dr. Jim Jokey, it was a privilege to talk to you. Thank you for making time for You're us. You're quite welcome. Anytime, give me a call. As you can tell, I like to talk about this stuff. You know, the spacesuits were a perfect example of this remarkable decade of problem solving. The industrial division of Playtex, the cross your heart bra people, Playtex made the spacesuits. They were an incredible high-tech creation, 21 layers of nested fabric, strong enough to stop a micrometeorite, flexible enough for the astronauts to do all their work and all their cavorting also on the moon, and Every stitch of every one of those 21 layers in every spacesuit was done by hand, sewn by hand by women in Dover, Delaware. So again, an innovative source for the, for the spacesuits, and then this blending of high-tech and hand craftsmanship that was required to get the job done. We'll hear more from author Charles Fishman, plus national flag-waving, why the Soviets lost their chance to plant a hammer and sickle, and how the Americans nearly left the Stars and Stripes at home. Plus, a nurse joins the mission. 
And she said, you know, you're just as crazy as these guys are. She said, they're wanting to put a man on top of a rocket and send him off into space, and you have just agreed to join them. All that next on the 50th anniversary of Apollo, what led to nailing the moon landing on Big Picture Science. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Good radar data. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Altitude 4200. Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. This is our 50th anniversary look at the July 1969 moon landing on Big Picture Science. And author Charles Fishman and curators from the Apollo exhibit at the Museum of Flight in Seattle are taking us behind the historic crackling radio utterance of one small step to some of the less polished moments that took us there. And... Uh, Charles, you've shared some of the improvisations on the road to Apollo 11, but of course, the astronauts couldn't improvise in every situation. And that brings to mind the great tragedy of the Apollo program, the fire on the Apollo 1 rocket that killed three astronauts, Robert Chaffee, Gus Grissom, and Ed White. In the Apollo 1 fire, the astronauts were in the capsule, which was sealed, on the launch pad, going through pre-launch tests for an actual mission that would have happened about a month later. And... There was a short circuit inside the capsule. There was a pure oxygen atmosphere. There was lots of flammable material inside the capsule. And there was an almost instantaneous conflagration inside that very tiny capsule. And the astronauts died. They, they didn't burn. They suffocated. And the conflagration was so intense that the capsule actually exploded and knocked the support staff in the surrounding launch pad off their feet. We have the hatch from the Apollo 11 command module, Columbia, on display. It's separated out from the the capsule. So we should say this is a hatch, this is a door. But a door is not just a door when you're talking about a spacecraft. Yeah, it's the only barrier between the astronauts and the vacuum of space. And uh, it's also, in the event of an emergency, especially on the launch pad, it's their only means of escape. And the original design of the hatch was a big contributor to the loss of life on Apollo 1 when they had a fire during testing. 
So this hatch is, is the redesigned hatch, which would allow the astronauts to get out quickly in the event of an emergency. What was the faulty design on Apollo 1? Uh, so on Apollo 1, they originally had an inward opening hatch, and the thought was they didn't want a hatch to accidentally blow outward once they were in space. But when there was a fire situation in the spacecraft, the heat increased the pressure inside the spacecraft and basically sealed the hatch against the side of the craft so it would take more strength than the astronauts actually had in order to, to pull that hatch inward to get out. That was Apollo 1, this yes. is Apollo 11. Yes. What were the fundamental design changes in the intervening years? There were a number of them. They, the big one is that they switched from a hatch that basically had three layers, each that had to be separated on their own and with inward opening hatches to a single hatch that you just turn a, a handle and it would open outward in the event that you needed to get out quickly. So Charles, they talked about how they changed the hatch from inward opening to outward opening. You find that in schools and so forth, I mean with doors and so forth, in case of fire. That's that's a fairly straightforward thing to do. There were many other things with that uh, you mentioned that were flammable materials that they were using. They reduced that. But the really interesting thing for me here is the fact that they had 100% oxygen atmosphere in that capsule. You know, in this room here, it's a 20% oxygen atmosphere, much less flammable. Why were they using 100% oxygen? You know, in, in the initial design, it almost feels a little sad to say this, but they were trying to save weight. And if you're going to mix gases, you know, with a partial pressure of this and a partial pressure of that, you had to have all kinds of mechanisms to enable you to do that. And that was complicated and it added weight to the capsule. And so it was a design compromise that they thought they could manage. And then they had this tragedy and they obviously realized that it wasn't a good compromise and they could afford whatever it was, the 50 or 80 pounds to manage the atmosphere inside the capsule differently. And I think you're right that at this moment, they took it seriously, not that they had not been taking the moonshot seriously, but this began the era of double, triple, quadruple checking all their work. The safety culture really was transformed by this because what caused the fire was literally wires that the insulation had rubbed off of, which seems like a sort of small thing, and yet it doomed those three people. And if that had happened in space, they also would have been doomed. And so people all of a sudden realized that space travel's different than building a B-52 bomber. And any small thing that goes wrong in that very high-powered environment, in that very dangerous environment, can cause a disaster. The Americans were not the only ones enduring tragedy. The Soviets, too, suffered devastating setbacks. But, says David Whitehouse, author of Apollo 11, The Inside Story, unlike NASA, their space program didn't have what it took to see the mission to completion. When our Cold War competitors felt irretrievably behind, they denied ever intending to plant Soviet boots in the lunar dust. It's surprising. After all, a dozen years earlier, the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik suggested that the Russians were on a clear course to space domination, fueling a frantic U.S. reaction, and the development of programs Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Actually, if you look at what the Soviet Union was doing at that time, you would have had to put money on the Soviet Union getting to the moon first. They had the better equipment, they had the more experience, they had the better design. And in a sense, uh, the Soviet Union threw it away and they lost the moon. Now, I'm old enough to remember when Sputnik went up, and it was a big shock. And the question was why they could do it. I think one of the most surprising things was that they could put so much 
mass, so such a heavy satellite into space mm, so yes. early. And, uh, you know, they had bigger rockets. At least at that time, they had bigger rockets. Why was that? Was that because, you know, they couldn't make other stuff smaller, like electronics and so forth? I mean, why was it that the Soviets had this big lead? You're quite right. It was because they were no good at militarization. It was all about lobbing nuclear bombs across into the continental distances. And um, the Soviet Union were not as good as the Americans at making atomic bombs small. Therefore, they heeded these much bigger, beefier, heavier, more powerful rockets. It seems that things went wrong more often than they actually went right. Maybe you could give an example of the failures that plagued both sides. Things were going wrong all the time, and how you could almost say, how could it not? Because this was untried technology. The the rockets and the capsules were being tested. So were the managerial systems to actually control them and procure them and make them and test them and then operate them. So was the understanding of how you have to monitor a spacecraft in space. One thing they realized, particularly after uh, John Glenn's flight, when his life was in peril, is that they needed much more information about the, the rocket and the capsule as the mission was progressing. There was Gemini 8 when um, uh, Neil Armstrong rescued the crew from certain death. Many of the spacewalks, Gene Cernan's spacewalk, for instance, he overheated dramatically. Uh, Michael Collins couldn't see when he was spacewalking. And Buzz Aldrin actually sorted all that out. He did a magnificent spacewalk, and that was why he was online to be in Apollo 11. So things went wrong all the time. But the good thing was that they understood it and they moved on, except when it came to Apollo 1 and the three crew died on the pad. This was also true on the Soviet side, of course. And, and the difference is that the Soviets would keep it quiet. Maybe you could describe mm. that, uh, that major catastrophe in which, you know, more than 100 people died. Yes, they lost hundreds of people during a rocket explosion on the pad where they broke every single rule. You know, the, the rule must be if there's explosive material there and you're pumping it onto the space, onto the rocket, you stand well back. And if something goes wrong, the last thing you do is run up to it to see what was wrong. That's what happened. They had a problem. They didn't know what to do. And a lot of people just ambled out onto the launch pad and went to have a look and it exploded. Lots of important officials, military officials, space officials um, had to be identified by their dental records. It was a tremendous explosion. So it was indicative of the fact that the Russians, although they had a fundamentally good design for a spacecraft in the early 60s, lost their way, lost their way due to taking too many risks, lost their way due to political pressure for space spectaculars, lost their way through internal competition and weren't able to maintain the focus and get over the problems as the Americans did. They took their advances when they could, but in terms of long-term strategic build-up, as the Americans had with Mercury, Germany and Apollo, they didn't have that. And it's a shame because it would have been interesting to see what, what they could have done. Would you say that it's fair to, to claim that the Soviets actually lost this race despite an initial lead simply because the system didn't support their efforts? They had a different style of engineering to the Americans. It was bigger, it was brute force, but it worked. You would have to say if the Soviets had stopped around about 1962-1963 and really focused themselves on getting to the moon, had they had a more logical system, had they had a much more rigid focus, a goal that the politicians believed in, 
they could have made an attempt. You had the Russian cosmonauts, even as 1969 was going ahead, and uh, you had Apollo 8, Apollo 9 and 10 working magnificently. The Russians had a rocket which, on a good day, with a magnificent amount of luck, could perhaps have got somebody in orbit around the moon or slung around the moon and come back. And you had Russian cosmonauts pleading. We know it's dangerous. We know, you know, it's it, it's going to be very dangerous. We may not survive with our lives, but let us do it. We want to do it. And the Russians did not have the confidence or the system to allow them to do that. So that's why they pulled off the greatest con trick in the history of spaceflight. They made people believe they weren't interested in going to the moon and their interest lay in space stations. Well, they said that, and they said that after Apollo 8. They mm. said that after Apollo 11. They weren't really interested in going to the moon, but of course that wasn't true. Was there actually a turning point in the space race? Was there a point that you could wag your finger at and say, that's when the Americans finally caught up to and surpassed the Russians in this effort? It would have been the mid-Gemini flights, I think, when uh, they took over the endurance record of staying in space. Some Gemini flights stayed in space in that very cramped two-man capsule for two weeks at a time. And it was then when they worked out how to dock and maneuver in space and to change orbits and to space work. Around about 1965, that's when the momentum turned to America. They didn't really know what the Russians were capable of, but they knew they had the abilities now to move on to Apollo. And it's remarkable that Apollo succeeded with, with I don't know, Apollo 11 landing on the moon with so few flights. So I'd put it in Gemini. Gemini is an underrated and fantastic series of missions. Gemini was when it turned in America's favor, I think. David Whitehouse, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure, Seth. Thank you very much. David Whitehouse is the author of Apollo 11, The Inside Story. So here's where we are at the beginning of 1969 in our Apollo story. We have a U.S. moon mission that for eight years has managed to combine careful strategic planning with the ability to handle unforeseen contingencies. It has survived mishaps and tragedies to finally reach the big day, the launch that will draw thousands to the bleachers and shorelines at Cape Kennedy, another million to the highways and beaches nearby, and glue an estimated 600 million to their televisions four days later to watch the first step in the planting of the American flag in the lunar dust. Well, wait, wait, the flag. Did anyone think to bring a flag? And how's it going to fly on the no-atmosphere lunar surface? Author Charles Fishman on this last-minute oops. Well, they did two things about the flag. The first thing they did was forget. (laughs) It was literally April of 1969, just 12 weeks before Apollo 11 was launched to the moon, that anybody in NASA started talking about, wait a minute, what what about the human part of this? What about the celebration part? What are we going to do to acknowledge the, the sort of achievement and the emotional element of going to the moon. They created a committee, the 
Committee for Celebrations of the First Lunar Landing. And um, there was a guy named Jack Kinsler, who was a pretty senior technical guy in Houston. And he said, you got to take a flag. That's what people who are exploring do. They plant a flag at the top of Mount Everest, at the North Pole, at the South Pole. And it was Jack Kinsler who came up with this idea of a flag with really two flagpoles. The typical flagpole, the vertical one that the flag is fastened to, and then a second pole that was hinged to the vertical one that came out horizontally like a curtain rod. He said he was, in fact, inspired by his mom making curtains while he was a kid. And the flag then had a seam along the top, and you just pulled the flag out along that horizontal pole that sort of latched into position. And then, although there was no air, there was no atmosphere, that way the flag looked like it was flying. And if you look at the pictures of the flag on the moon from all of the flights, you can see the pole. The pole is very clearly there. And it was an ingenious solution. Well, we now have better insight into why the American space program won this race. But there are a few more surprises, including Neil Armstrong's landing. Here's a quiz. How much fuel was left when the Eagle touched down? Two hours worth? Two minutes? 14 seconds? That's next. On the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, it's Nailing the Moon Landing on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Before Apollo 11 could launch 50 years ago, there were double, triple, even quadruple checks of flight plans, equipment, and the human beings who were about to make history. One of the hundreds of thousands of people who never put on a spacesuit, but whose efforts helped make the American moon mission a success, worked for NASA for the duration of the space race, that is, from Mercury through Apollo and ultimately to the mission widely seen as a detente, the 1975 joint U.S.-Soviet space project Apollo-Soyuz, is still with the agency today. My name is Dee O'Hara, and I was the NASA flight nurse from the Mercury astronauts clear through to the Apollo-Soyuz mission. Well, none of them really needed a nurse, to be honest with you, but when they were putting the programs together, it was decided that if they had a nurse, she would be able to pick up if there was any illness going on because they knew that the astronaut would not say anything to a flight surgeon. As you know, astronauts are afraid of flight surgeon because flight surgeons have the capability of grounding them. I did not. So that was the basic reason. It was like talking to a friend when they talked to you. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think so. And the agreement was they could come to me with anything, regardless of what it was, and I would never betray them. But if I thought it was serious enough I was uh, obligated and would tell a flight surgeon. 
they were young guys, right? They were in kind of typically in their early 30s, I yes. believe. Yes. So they had already been vetted in any case because they were military pilots. So all the things that uh, might be systematic, I suppose, had been kind of weeded out. Either ruled out or they were not selected. So those that were selected, uh, as you said, were, had all been vetted and were in pretty darn good shape uh, when, uh, when we got them, when NASA uh, brought them on board. They viewed themselves as being kind of invincible, it sounds like. Oh, well, yes, of course. They were all the number one pilot. They were all the hotshot pilots. They were a number one for everything. I imagine that I, I'm trying to imagine this. I'm Neil Armstrong. It's early July 1969. In a few days, I'm going to be stuffed into the nose of a Saturn V rocket, and uh, I come to see you. What sort of tests would you do, and how long would it take? We saw all of the crew, and particularly the 11 crew, every day, five days prior to the mission. First of all, we saw them at what we call F-30, which was 30 days before. Then we saw them at F-15, 15 days before, and F-11. And then we would see them periodically, but from F-5, five days before the launch, we saw them every day. We checked their skin, mainly to see there were no rashes or itching, checked their ears to be sure, because they had to wear earphones, and to be sure there was nothing that would become irritant once they launched. What was the most scary situation that you uncovered when you were examining these guys? Oh, I don't think I ever found anything really scary. One of them had a bad rash on his chest, and he also had one in the ear. And our concern was, and that's really not scary, except when it's that close to launch, you want to make sure that that is cleared up before they go. So you really were an important control element in this whole thing. Well, I guess. I just... Well, I can hear that you're being modest, Dee, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, there could have been a situation which could have fouled up the whole uh, whole operation on no, no, Apollo 11 or any of the others. Uh, yes, and that's why there were a couple of incidents that they came to me about, and I, in my judgment, thought I could take care of it by myself. And I told them, you know, I'll, I'll see how we solve this, and I would either take samples or whatever and take it to the a hospital there in, in Cocoa Beach. Any, anything you can tell me about here? No. Okay. Uh, well, one of them... Uh, yes, was trying out the uh, urine collection system, and it backfired and clamped down on him. And so we wanted to be sure there was no bleeding or that sort of thing, so I had him leave a urine sample, and I took it into the hospital and under a fake name, of course, and, and they examined, and there were no red blood cells. So that problem went away with great relief on both of our sides. So it was things like that, small things. Did they carry... I mean, I suppose they would have a first aid kit or something on oh, yeah. board. I mean, what, to, to what extent were they prepared for medical emergencies? I don't think any of them were prepared as such. And, and the, the medical kit they had on board was not extensive uh, because they weren't going to be gone that long. So they had the usual Band-Aids and aspirin and, you know, things like that. If some injury occurred because, I don't know, they cut themselves on a piece of metal, or I, I don't know, or, or something went wrong with their spacesuits when they were out on the surface of the moon, I mean, something like that could be quite serious. Well, it, not only serious, it could be deadly. And that's why I know, as you, you probably saw them gamboling, if you will, around because of the what, one-sixth gravity, they were cautioned and admonished to not be jumping around because if they fell and tore that suit, it was kind of all over. Now, the Apollo mission, 
that wasn't your first rodeo. It was also not your right. last rodeo. <laughs> right. You've been involved in several manned space missions. How'd you get into this business? I mean, did you get a degree in astronaut nursing, I mean, if there was such a thing? No, the bottom line was I was in the right place at the right time. But you were, you were already trained I as was a nurse. In, I was in the Air Force. I got called in. They said, well, are you scared? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, you better be more scared because you're going to go see the, the base commander. And so when in the office, his exec officer was there, the chief nurse was there, all these people. And he started talking. He mentioned astronauts. I didn't have a clue what that was. He went on and on. He mentioned Mercury. Well, I knew there was a planet named Mercury. I knew there was Mercury in a thermometer. And that was, that was the extent of my so-called knowledge. So then he said, well, do you want the job or not? And I said, well, I guess so. Anyway, the chief nurse went ballistic because she was losing a nurse out of the hospital. And she said, you know, you're just as crazy as these guys are. She said, they're wanting to put a man on top of a rocket and send him off into space. And you have just agreed to join them. Dee O'Hara, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. This was painless. It was very nice. Dee O'Hara was a NASA flight nurse for one and a half decades. Good morning. It's T minus one hour, 29 minutes, and 53 seconds, and counting. It's July 16, 1969, and astronauts Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong head to the launch pad. If all goes well, Apollo 11 astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins are to lift off from pad 39A out there on the voyage man always has dreamed about. All systems look good, except... From early morning, engineers have been working to fix a defective liquid hydrogen valve, and they're still scrambling, even as the astronauts ride the elevator to the top of the Saturn V. If they don't fix the valve, the launch will be scrubbed. Fortunately, they do fix it. The astronauts are seated. All systems are go. Two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Apollo 11 spacecraft loops one and a half times around the Earth before catapulting toward the moon. Soon after, Michael Collins does an amazing thing. He directs the command module Columbia to separate from the rest of the spacecraft, turn 180 degrees, and head back to dock with the lunar module Eagle, which was behind it. The combined spacecraft, command module and Eagle lander, now head for the moon. Everything is as smooth as a billiard ball, and it's all working beautifully. Four days later, on July 20th, Neil and Buzz climb into the Eagle and prepare for the descent to the moon as Michael Collins begins a solitary 22-hour orbit around it. However, the onboard computer is directing the craft to an area of the moon that is littered with boulders, so Neil takes over the controls and he scans for an area that's clear as the Eagle flies lower and lower over the lunar surface. Altitude 1600. Eagle looking great. Roger 1202, we copy it. As the Eagle loses altitude, it is also burning fuel, and the two gauges are in a backwards race. At 100 feet above the surface, there are just 90 seconds of propellant remaining. At 70 feet above, 60 seconds of fuel. Neil keeps scanning for a patch of boulder-free ground. Lunar dust kicked up by the Eagle's engine obscures his view. He keeps scanning. Now they've dropped to 15 feet above the surface. 23 seconds of fuel remaining. Neil flies low and lower, so close to the surface of the moon that he and Buzz could count the craters. 20 seconds of fuel. 18, 16. Tranquility base here. 
the Eagle has landed. With 14 seconds of fuel remaining, the Eagle comes to rest in the Sea of Tranquility. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. I'm Ted Hutter, Museum of Flight Public Relations Manager. All of the Apollo astronauts were pilots, so that was very much a part of the experience. They wouldn't think of a trip to the moon or a mission to the moon or into space as anything but a flight. And I think that's something that's been kind of lost since then. Surely they recognized it as something more than a typical flight. I think they were doing heart monitoring on Neil Armstrong, always a cool cucumber, very professional on the outside, and his heart rate got up to something like 150 beats per minute on that landing on the moon, so he was registering that it was not an ordinary landing. No, not at all. But he also mentioned, you know, because there's been a lot of talk about how, how much fuel was left on board. And when he talked about it later on, he was saying, well, you know, we used to fly the LLTV, that was the trainer. We used to fly it all the time to like 15 seconds worth of fuel. So really, that was not a big deal or an unusual thing. It's not because Neil was a daredevil. Oh, no, no, that, that would be risking the mission. It's a matter of being able to judge what's possible with what you've got. A pilot knows that, okay, I know it's going to take me two seconds to land. If I've got three seconds of fuel, that's good. That gives you a margin to work with? Right. You know. <laughs> Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man. Well, one of the surprises about landing on the moon that you chronicle, which I just love, is the idea that the moon has a smell, or at least the astronauts think that it had a smell. How did the astronauts discover this? And of course, Charles, what does the moon smell like? You know, this was this was a wonderful moment. I think it was actually a wonderful moment for the astronauts, and it was certainly a wonderful moment in my research and reporting because it's it's not really widely known. That that very first time, Armstrong and Aldrin come in from their two and a half hour moonwalk. They seal the hatch of the lunar module, repressurize, and then they unsnap their space helmets, and the entire cabin of the lunar module has been filled with this odor. And it was, in fact, the odor of all the moon dirt and moon dust that they had tracked back inside. The moon turns out to smell like Armstrong called it smelling like fireplace ashes or the ashes in a barbecue grill. Aldrin described it as the air after a fireworks show, a kind of burned or gunpowdery smell. All six crews of two people encountered the smell. And what's interesting is by the time they got back to Earth, and even by the time the moon rock samples got back to Earth, the smell was gone. Little amounts of air and moisture even leaked into the sealed rock sample containers and sort of, they, they use the word pacified. They pacified the moon material. So scientists have smelled the moon rocks and they don't smell like that anymore. But I, I don't think anyone doubts that the astronauts really smelled this. The last three missions had three moonwalks each and the inside of the lunar module got really dirty with moon dirt and they smelled the smell every time.
The first humans to set foot on the moon did so 50 years ago. We haven't been back since the end of the Apollo program, and some of the astronauts have passed away. Even that weird scent of the moon has faded from the moon rocks. So what is the legacy of Apollo, and how did we go from no space program to nailing the moon landing in under a decade? It's because a lot of things came together. It was the time when America was developing advanced technology, miniaturization. It was politically the right time because it was the legacy of a martyred president. In terms of international relations, the right time because it was a race, the most important race in the world at the time between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it was because of very brave men and women and spending 4% of the American budget on going to the moon. All those things came together. And the reason we haven't gone back is because we've never had those things come together since. We've heard about the geopolitical consequences. We've heard about the technology spin-offs, the development of microelectronics. But personally, I think that the really important thing about the Apollo mission is that a thousand years from now, when people think back to the 20th century, what they will remember is one thing. It was the century in which humans first set foot on another world. Thank you to the guests in this show. Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, David Whitehouse, author of Apollo 11, The Inside Story, and Dee O'Hara. Also to the curators and historians at the Museum of Flight in Seattle for their tour of the Smithsonian Special Traveling Exhibit of Apollo 11 Artifacts, Destination Moon. You can find more information about that exhibit and links to all our guests on our website, bigpicturescience.org. This show is possible thanks to the excellent behind-the-scenes team, Senior Producer Gary Niederhoff, Assistant Producer Sarah Derwin, and Operations Manager Barbara Vance. I am Executive Producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a special 50th anniversary of Apollo episode of Big Picture Science called Nailing the Moon Landing. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.